Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Jeffrey Fowler, CEO of Hodinkee. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and JCKOnline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. And I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCKOnline.com, calling in from New York City. How's it going? It's going good. I'm a tiny bit jet lagged, as you probably know, because I just returned from a week in Botswana after a 40 hour odyssey home on Saturday. Literally, I had a long layover in Zurich of all places after flying from Botswana to Johannesburg on to Zurich. Back to, it was really quite quite the odyssey, but it was an incredible trip. I was there with De Beers. Did, I did mention it, right, Rob? Yeah, I did tell you That's where I was right. going. How, how many days were you there? When all is said and done, I think I was on the ground for about five days. I flew into Gaborone, or Habarone, I think it's actually pronounced, which is the capital of Botswana. We spent a couple of days in Habarone, and one of those was visiting the De Beers sorting facility, where their site holders come to see their sorting, you know, their boxes and their... Uh, by their sites. And then we spent another day visiting the Zhuaneng mine, which is just a jaw-dropping site. I'd been there in 2004. And, you know, the pit, it's a gaping open pit, and they take about 110 million tons of material out of it every year, I'm told. So, of course, you know, it was a smaller pit when I was there 19 years ago. And it's just such a jaw-dropping site. It felt like it's very otherworldly, you know, like you're watching something get terraformed on Mars. But it was really, really special. And then, of course, the the highlight was traveling to Chobe Game Park, which is in the north of Botswana. And it's just an incredible place to see elephants, especially, and all kinds of wildlife. And it was a really wonderful group. I was a guest of Benbridge, and then there were a number of guests of De Beers, and it was about 13 of us total, and it was just a really lovely group, and, you know, always really fascinating to travel to the source. So I'll have more to say about that on our next podcast, but let's cut to the chase here. We have a guest that I'm so excited to speak to today because, and I we have met, although I'm trying to remember, I think it was recently, um, somebody's really got their finger on the pulse of the watch world because he is Jeff Fowler, chief executive of Hodinkee, probably the most most influential voice in the entire watch world, dare I say. Welcome, Jeff. It's so nice to have you. Thank you so much, guys. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, with you both. Big fan of the publication and all that you guys do. So it's really a pleasure to be with you. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. It feels like I think I met Ben Clymer, the founder, of course, of Hodinkee, maybe around 2008, which was, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the year that Hodinkee was founded? When the whole thing got started. Yeah, that's right. That was the founding year of Hodinkee, correct. God, what is that? I have to do the math in my 15 head. 15 years. Yeah. yeah. We're, yeah. we're celebrating our 15th anniversary this year. You know, wow. one thing I, I wondered, uh, and maybe I'm just not clued in, but, you know, when you research these podcasts, you also the questions come to mind. And one thing I realize is I don't know what the name Houdinki means, where he got it and what it came from. Do you have any insight? Yeah, yeah. So Houdinki is actually the Czech word in the Czech or Slavic languages for wristwatch. And it's spelled H-O-D-I-N-K-Y with a Y at the end. Um, and at the time that Ben was, you know, thinking about brainstorming a name for his watch blog, which is what Hodinkee began life as, a watch blog, he was looking around at other businesses that were really popular and prevalent at the time. The biggest company in the world at that time, arguably, was Google, which 
has the double vowel. And then, you know, when Paltrow had recently launched Goop again with the double vowel and Yahoo double vowel. So double vowels just seem to be a little bit of a, a kind of a quirky, trendy thing. And I think Hodinkee with two E's just, you know, kind of aesthetically has a nice appeal and pleasant to look at. And it's catchy, you know, and actually prompts a lot of people to wonder what it stands for. And it, it, it embarks you down a, a road of conversation about watches. Did you know that? I did know that, but the thing I didn't know, and Jeff, maybe, um, is if Ben has any Czech connection. Like, He does he- not. Nope. Not at all. I mean, I do love that idea. I think I did a story on names one year in the watch industry, or names of watches, actually. And I spoke to a naming expert. And like these sort of very unusual names, they just... They stick in your mind because they're not words you have ever heard. They're kind of just yeah. something that totally. does prompt a further inquiry. So, Funny side note, you know, you guys probably know that we publish a magazine, Hodinkee Magazine. It's a, It's been an award-winning magazine for years. We're about to publish our 12th edition later this fall. But there's an actual trade publication published for the Czech-speaking parts of the world called Hodinki. And uh, we get quite a chuckle whenever we see it out in the wild. So if we're at a watch <laughs> trade fair and there are people attending from all over the world, there might be a copy of Hodinki magazine, the Czech version, sitting around. And it's quite funny to see it. I mean, you can't copyright a name, so I'm told. No. So yeah, <laughs> lots of those around. But let's back up. We always start off with our guests just asking about your background. And you've got a really impressive background, quite a lot of important positions you've had. So tell us how how you got to the position at Hodinkee. Yeah, I studied for my undergraduate degree at Harvard. I studied English and American literature and languages. I never really went on to apply that in any meaningful way professionally. I was not intended for a career in academics. Um, Eventually went on to get my MBA at INSEAD in France. And at that point in my career, I I kind of had zeroed in on the the luxury goods industry as one that I was uh, keenly interested in and and definitely looking to find a foothold in the industry. And eventually found my way to uh, a career starting with LVMH, specifically with Louis Vuitton. And at the time, Louis Vuitton had a program for folks with backgrounds like my own who had maybe come through a business school, earned an MBA, perhaps they had spent some time in consulting or banking. And what they did was they threw you right into the deep end into a retail store management position. So I began my career with Louis Vuitton as an assistant store manager in their Sloan Street boutique right around the corner from Harrods in Knightsbridge in London. Uh, I learned a ton. I loved it. I eventually went on to become a store manager with Louis Vuitton and then eventually the director of a corporate department called Retail Performance. And this was a kind of incredible learning opportunity for me. I think, you know, arguably one of the most prestigious brands in the industry. Uh, Within LVMH, I transferred to my first stint in the watch industry, actually became the vice president of retail for Tag Heuer. This is back in about 2013 at a time when the watch industry, which has done off and on again over the course of, of, of many years, uh, made a push towards trying to have a more direct relationship with its end consumer by opening up physical points of sale for the brand. And Tag Heuer was opening you know, boutique locations in places like Miami Design District on New York's Fifth Avenue in malls like Century City. And, and so I was involved with the brand at that time while we were making a, a big push into retail. I was responsible for the development of the retail strategy and the execution across North America. Uh, and then eventually found my way over to Cartier. So I left LVMH, went to work for the Richemont Group and was in a similar position, VP of retail for Cartier. After Cartier, I briefly went to work for Tesla. So I actually moved to the West Coast. A slight departure if you will, from kind of the luxury goods industry, but I suppose automobile, you know, you can make an argument that Tesla sort of fits in that industry as well. And interestingly, I joined Tesla to join up with someone who had come like me from the luxury goods industry, in his case, from Burberry, in my case, you know, from Richemont and LVMH. 
And then eventually uh, from Tesla, made my way to Farfetch, where I was for the last almost six years prior to joining Hodinkee. I was the uh, president for the Americas at Farfetch, overseeing the businesses across the Western Hemisphere, North and South America. I was part of the executive team there. I joined at a really pivotal time for Farfetch while it was still a private business eventually uh, went public through an IPO on the New York Stock Exchange and really just learned so much in that opportunity and, and, and absolutely loved the, the business and loved the founder and loved the growth aspects of it. Right up until the point where uh, in March of 2022, I uh, joined Hodinkee as CEO. So that kind of brings us up to the present. But uh, yeah, it was a, a really exciting, fun and kind of adventure-filled uh, career journey up to this point. So you have obviously a, a really wide ranging resume. Were there big cultural differences between a place like LVMH and it's one of its main competitors, Richemont, and then a tech company like Tesla and then a startup, Arfetch? Did you notice any big differences in, in the culture? Yeah, I think, you know, broadly speaking, you can bucket the first half of my career and the second half of my career, which are, you know, of roughly equal length. Into the first half, businesses with an average age of 250 years. And in the second half, businesses with an average age of 15 years. And as you can probably imagine, there's a noticeable difference in the culture of these types of businesses. One where when you join a Louis Vuitton or you join a Tag Heuer or you join a Cartier, you quite literally spend the first week or two in the business almost in school, like studying a history class. You know, you're learning about the history, the heritage, the stories, the key milestones. You're learning about the founder, but the founder is someone who lives in the pages of a history book. And then if you fast forward to the second half of the career, whether it's with Tesla, where you know, I was just a couple of levels removed from Elon Musk, or Farfetch, where I, where I worked on Jose Neves, the founder and CEO and, and chairman, or at Hodinkee, where you know the first person I met from Hodinkee on the recruitment journey was Ben Klein, the founder of Hodinkee. And now Ben and I talk you know, every single day and multiple times a day. It's really just different to be able to be kind of one of the people still building the foundations of a business, even if you're trying to build it quickly into the size and scale of something that it could have been around for 250 years based on how how, how large and how, how meaningful a business it can become. Uh, versus, you know, feeling like in some ways you're a custodian of a business and you're a link in a chain that stretches back, you know, many, many years. And that is not a judgment statement or a quality statement that one's better, one's worth, but they're just very different. Well, so tell us what drew you then to Hodinkee. And I'd love to hear your take on Hodinkee's culture. And, you know, if that's changing at all, I guess, under your tenure? Um, you know, having been in the watch industry about 10 years ago, I was aware of Hodinkee at that time. I think, you know, even in year five of Hodinkee, when Ben was, you know, the sole owner of the business and he had a, a team of probably people that you could count on one hand. I mean, probably the staff was three to five people. It already had built up a reputation and an impact in the industry that was way larger than the reality of what the business was as a single owned, you know, proprietor business and, and a team of five. Uh, ben was, was, you know, his name was known across the industry. He was present at all press events. He was someone who I think was among the first to really see the enormous appetite for taking what the industry was doing and bringing it online and bringing it in a way that was approachable, you know, modest, not overly self-important, you know, treated the craft of storytelling incredibly importantly without treating watches as though they were this like out of touch, overly important asset. They were just watches. And that sort of level of humility combined with curiosity, combined with approachability and wit was really a great combination. At a time when the industry, I think 
it would probably be incorrect to say it didn't understand the power of the internet, but it was an industry that was still, to go back to the cultural thing that I said before, very traditional. I mean, it worked with, you know, uh, physical press packets uh, and, and physical photographs that can be distributed at physical trade shows through physical channels. And eventually people will get the information about these products in a very sort of non-immediate way. And Ben, obviously with what he was doing with Hodinkee, was doing things in a very immediate way. He was going to trade shows in those early years in Basel and in Geneva you know, that, with a camera around his neck. And he was met with surprise from people saying, well, we have already done our press pack. And he said, I'm actually here to take my photographs and they're going to be online immediately. And yeah. that was just such a sea change at that time. You know, so the impact of Hodinkee was already happening, was already being felt. In the meantime, you know, as I sort of was busy on with my career and eventually got in, you know, away from the watch industry into the broader fashion category, uh, what really drew me back to it, honestly, was uh, was a bit of luck. In December of 2021, my wife and I had had our third son in three years. So there was a personal element to that. We had had three babies very quickly. On the third opportunity, I decided to take a bit of time off. And during that time off, I was reached out to by a recruiter who introduced me to Ben. And I got to know Ben just at the time they were looking for a CEO. Um, and I kind of, in my mind, Hodinkee was a little bit frozen in time, like a fossil. It was sort of, you know, this watch blog that was highly influential, but that was sort of the extent of what it was. And although I paid attention to the articles, I read the content, I just wasn't as close enough to it to understand just how much it evolved on the side of Hodinkee. So, you know, in that time span in between, when I was in the industry and when I came back to it, Ben and the team had moved from content and, and this incredible community that they had started to build very organically and pushed into commerce, starting with limited edition watches with accessories and watch sort of related products. And then eventually Odinki became back in 2017, which is not that long ago, a little over five years ago, the first online only authorized retailer of watches, you know, bringing this authorized retailer status into the digital only world with eight brands. And now it's up to 40 brands like Omega, Bright Bulgari, Tag Heuer, you know, some of the biggest brands in the world, we're, we're an authorized retailer for those brands online. Eventually in, in 2021, Odinki pushed even further into the online space, uh, launching pre-owned watches through an acquisition of a business called Crown and Caliber. So all this was happening and, and really, you know, very, very organically, we love the category. We love the industry. We're genuine in that. We try to create things that, you know, people like ourselves would also love. We try to include as many people in that as possible. So inclusivity is a big, big part of what we do uh, across elements of all elements of what we do. Try to be incredibly approachable. And we try to just make sure that, you know, this industry is as as uh, accessible to as many people that want to consume, even just information about it, not necessarily buy products, but even just sort of, you know, wake up each morning and, and with their coffee, you know, read Hodinkee and see what's going on in the world of watches. So that's a little bit about who we are. A great answer. Yeah, it's been fun to watch Hodinkee become the force that it is. It really, I, you said something about how recently it was the first online retailer, just 2017, of, or authorized retailer of all these. That's, it's pretty remarkable. It feels like a different universe on, you know, the flip side of the pandemic. But how I, you know, this is one, one of our questions, and I've always wondered this, is how you reconcile being both a content provider and such a, you know, growing e-commerce player? Is there tension at all in that relationship? You know, especially when you cover brands that are either that you sell or you're trying to promote or that you're trying or that our advertisers, how, how do you manage that? There quite honestly is not a lot of tension in how we manage that. I think this question comes up often and I think there would be, you know, maybe a suspicion of, you know, motivation on our side to be shilling for brands that we don't believe in and, and, and just kind of like following the dollars and then pushing product on people and doing so in a disingenuous way. And I think like that's somehow the illusion of the question that there would be that tension. The reality of it is much... <laughs> 
is actually quite simple. I think, you know, when it comes to publishing the printed word, whether it's in print or whether it's online, you know, there's a cost associated to that and you need to generate revenue in order to be able to sort of operate your business profitably. There's a handful of ways you can do that. And among them, you know, that you have, we'll have advertising, you know, where you can sell a lot of advertising dollars against the eyeballs that come to your site and push advertising, you know, onto people that they may or may not want to see. You can have a paid model where you have people paying to subscribe to what you write and kind of gating everything behind a paywall and getting them hooked, but then basically saying, well, if you want more of that, you've got to pay me, you know, a monthly subscription or whatever it is. Or you can take, you know, and I'm sure there's many others. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here with my list, but one of them is, you know, you can sell the product that you also cover, that we cover out of this sort of sense, again, of love and curiosity and passion and enthusiasm. And I guess the simple answer to how we manage that balance is there's a whole universe of things we could write about in the watch industry. It's remarkable to some people to know that we have an editorial staff of 20 to 25 people that are publishing, you know, five times a day, seven days a week content to our site and to our social media. There are a lot of things we don't write about. And in some cases, you can almost look to the things we don't cover, we don't write about, we don't, you know, pay attention to as as sort of an editorial choice or curation of, you know, the things we love, the things that we think matter. And the same holds true for what we sell, you know, so we try to work with brands where we have a genuine enthusiasm and love and appreciation for what that brand is trying to do. We take it a step further by collaborating directly with some of those brands on you know unique products that we co-create together. So you have limited edition products that we've made with the likes of Omega and Tag Heuer, Vacheron Constantin, the oldest watch brand in, in, in the industry. We've, we've done a limited edition with Vacheron with independent watchmakers who we love to try and spot and find as they're coming up in their careers and work with them and put a spotlight on the work that they're doing. And we've even taken that a step further and collaborated with some of the top brands outside of the watch category. So we've done two cameras with Leica, the camera manufacturer, who we think is among the best camera makers in the world. You know, we've done limited edition products with Drake's, the men's clothing experts. So I think that's where we find the balance is that we really try to focus whether it's our energy around content or our energy around commerce on the brands that we love the best. Both of those teams operate independently. We, we, we don't sort of like ask from one to do something they otherwise wouldn't want to do on their own. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Rough Diamond Experience is coming to New York City July 17th through the 21st. This one-day workshop explores how to sort and value rough diamonds. De Beers has a unique position in the world of diamonds in that they explore and recover diamonds from Botswana, Canada, South Africa, and Namibia. This course allows students to experience how De Beers experts sort and value the rough diamonds that they recover. It is a truly unique opportunity to study with the world's leading diamond experts. Visit institute.debeers.com to register today and save 10% with code JCK underscore 10. I've always found it interesting that there's so many watch publications, and I can't think of many other consumer products that there's so many publications devoted to, maybe cars, tech, obviously, computers, but watches seem unique, and especially compared to the related category, which is jewelry, which is the backbone of our publication, there's there's certainly a lot more consumer watch publications than jewelry publications. Why do you think the watch category in particular drives such interest in such discussions and has attracted this really devoted community? I'm going to borrow a quote here from Nicholas Menuzos, who's the um, head of the um, 
Horological Society of New York, but I think he said this so beautifully. He said, you know, that a wristwatch, a mechanical wristwatch is a science project wrapped inside of a history project wrapped inside of an art project. And that's so true because a wristwatch is a a little tiny machine incredibly intricately woven together to create something that basically does through machinery, something that nowadays is entirely ubiquitous and pretty much like everywhere, right? It just tells time, measures time, tells time. So it's sort of this incredibly like irrational, true luxury purchase in the sense of some people are spending an enormous amount of time and resource to create this little thing, this little machine, this little gadget that does all these things. And then there's elements where it's like, there's only so many of them. So you have elements of scarcity. There are in some cases really precious materials being used or or really precious crafts being deployed, which are incredibly uh, rare and, and, and in some cases expensive, but in some cases just it's the uniqueness of them. It's the fact that only a handful of people know how to do those things that, you know, creates this series of intriguing things about this object. And again, I go back to the history piece that there are literally tomes of, of, of works that could be written about the history of certain brands or products or individual consumers like Paul Newman's Daytona, to give you an example, or the art side of it, you know, the beautiful crafts that are being deployed to make the dials that are being deployed to make the movements with exhibition case back. And then you have the science of it, right? The kind of like innovations that are created by watchmakers or, or watch brands in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. So I think you have a little bit of every, something for everyone. And then that's not even to get to the kind of like emotional and personal side of it, which is, and I often say this, I say that, you know, of all the things that I could wear on my body at any given moment in time, there's probably very few things that I would be able to tell you a story about other than my watch. And, and that is, is now a little totem of my life. And maybe it's because I got it from my father or got it as a graduation present, or I spent my first big paycheck to get it, or I bought it to celebrate a life success, a milestone in my career, perhaps. All of those things in my case are true amongst different watches in my collection. You know, I have a watch that I've gotten from my father. I have a watch from my great-grandfather. I have a watch that I bought to celebrate joining Kodinki as the CEO. You know, I don't really need any of these watches, but in all those cases, those will be things that have meaning for me and that that meaning can be transmitted through time, you know, perhaps to my sons, my wife, to other people in my life, and they'll have some piece of my history with them. And I think there's something very human in that. Like we'll all at one point, you know, be gone and and, and, and we'll just have the memories and, and the objects that were parts of our lives. And there's something just, I think, that's very universally human about this category that connects to people. I think that's a very full and very spot on answer. I've always wondered why jewelry doesn't have that same following. The only aspect of jewelry that is not shared, I guess, by what is just the mechanical aspect. I mean, jewelry has history. Jewelry has totemic quality. And I don't know that we need to linger on here. I don't know if it's ultimately a, an audience question about the way women consume content the way, versus the way men consume content. I don't know, given jewelry's traditional audience and, you know, watches traditional audience. I wondered if, if Hodinkee would ever explore other categories then. I mean, or I feel like I've asked that question before and it's always been no. I mean, you have to some degree of these, these other lifestyle products, but any sense of pushing into categories outside of watches in a bigger way? Yeah, no, not not, not really. I mean, I, I, you know, it's all wrapped up in our mission. We talk about this internally. We say our mission is to make the world of watches better. And actually, I can give you a thousand examples of, of how we think about making the world of watches better. But one of the ways is just to continue to kind of like grow the industry, grow the consumer base, grow the level of enthusiasm, give more access to it. And, and really, 
You know, I think there, there are probably multiple times in the history of the mechanical watch industry where this industry very well could have gone the way of the dinosaurs and, and people would have pointed to it and said, you know, the development of the quartz battery is the end of the mechanical watch. And the development of the Apple watch, the smartwatch and the pro- proliferation of the smartwatch, that's the end of the mechanical watch. Despite all those things, you know, and you guys would know this as you're on the trade side, but you know, in the last few years, the Swiss watch industry, Swiss watch exports have had record year after record year after record year after record year. The consumer base gets younger. The consumer base gets more diverse. You have watches now not being purchased, you know, sort of purchased, bought and sold. And uh, as a virgin purchased the one time only, you have the explosion of the secondhand watch markets. You have watches not only being bought and sold, but watches being bought and sold and bought and sold and bought and sold the same watch. You always had that, of course, with auctions and with the old fashioned way of, of, of moving pre-owned watches, which was, you know, offline and very kind of sometimes dodgy but now you have you know sites like ours and others that you know allow you to have that very highly transparent trusted authoritative kind of way of buying a watch knowing that what you're getting is high quality authentic going to be in great condition has a warranty and so i think for me it's kind of just you know that's our focus our focus is is that is just really helping to build that industry up in a way that sort of continues to grow and and just make it as qualitative as possible you mentioned all the secondhand watch sites and there's obviously a bunch of them. Now that you're in that business, do you find it really competitive? And do you see at some point a shakeout of all these sites? Um, no, I don't think so. Two things. One, just on a personal level, if you know me, you know that I try to avoid using the, the C word. Not because I am not competitive. We all are as human beings. But I just think that in an industry like this one, in the industry that I was in previously, there will always be choices and there always should be choices for consumers to be able to kind of consume in the way that they want. And I I feel like, you know, enough innovative enterprising people like a Ben Clymer when he was younger will come along with new ideas and new ways to kind of bring value to the end consumer and and to provide an alternative. So I think, you know, we see the opportunity within the pre-owned space as one can definitely be grown. The overall sort of pre-owned market, the size of the pre-owned market is growing and more of it is transitioning online year after year after year. So definitely feel like we're well poised to grow the pre-owned side of our business. And that's a big part of our overall business. But I think, you know, the way that we'll approach that and the way that some other players in the space might approach that will, will be different. And I just think like partnerships are always going to be stronger than competitions. How is the growth of the certified pre-owned space and, and particularly Rolex's certified pre-owned, how has that affected Hodinkee? I would say like the actual effect, none whatsoever. The signaling effect is is a good effect in that like the largest watch brand in the world by a country mile has embraced the pre-owned watch space, finally. <laughs> you know, and I'll say finally because... It's not, as, it's not as though pre-owned watches haven't been bought and sold for decades at this point, but you know now for the first time kind of ever in their history, they're formally acknowledging you know its existence and actually playing a role in it. Not not dissimilar to like in the, in the car industry, right? Where if you want to buy a pre-owned BMW, you can go to a generic multi-brand lot or you can go to BMW directly and get a certified pre-owned BMW. And I come back to what I just said previously, which is that it's given consumers even more choices the way we see the certified premium program playing out, the one that is blessed and authorized by Rolex, is again a good choice for certain consumers. It means that they can go into a Rolex authorized dealer to buy a certified premium Rolex. Typically, what we're finding is that they're priced a little bit higher. There's a premium being placed on that to be able to buy it from the Rolex AD as a certified premium versus being able to buy it or and or sell it to you know another channel like a Hodinkee. So consumers have more choices. That's really the outcome of it. But it, but it in no way has sort of hampered or, or threatened. I think 
you know, any other player's ability to buy and sell Rolex watches on the pre-owned market. If anything, it's just given yet another alternative and, and, and another choice. A lot of our listeners are retail jewelers. They are multi-brand retailers. Any big macro trends you think are important for them to pay attention to as far as shifts in distribution or the brands going direct? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the brands going direct is a trend that over the last probably three years has been accelerating towards more of that direct approach. You've seen certain brands go entirely direct, like an Audemars Gay or Vacheron Constantin was a brand that pushed very heavily in the, in the direction of direct. I think one thing brands acknowledge in this industry is the power of a really incredible retailer who understands her or his you know, local client base and is able to speak to that local client base because they're very much a part of that community in a way that you know a brand headquartered in the, the Val de Joux in Switzerland could never be a part. I think we crossed paths with Rios recently at the, the Gem Awards. I know JCK was there and present. And it, you know, it was really, it's always really exciting and wonderful and beautiful to see and celebrate the multi-brand jewelers and retailers who are uplifted at these types of events and celebrated for their successes. And I find it awe-inspiring just to see the degree to which they've really made a community their own and really sort of, you know, been embraced by that community because they're a part of the fabric of that community. And, you know, we can list off all the great retailers across North America and there's so many examples, but I think that's something that they'll always have at their back is, you know, the ability to really know a consumer base in a community and, and be the best at expressing expressing, you know, the way that a brand should show up in that community even better than the brand itself. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. We're out of time, but it's been such a pleasure. We could talk to you for hours. We'll have to have you back one day. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time and the opportunity to speak with you. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.